So, ship. Is that an imperative, Miles, or a question? I mean, like, do you want my favorite ship, or are you just suggesting that I start shipping, or should no, I be- No, no, not ship, Jay. Ship. The definite article. Ah, okay. That I am familiar with. It's celestial, right? In both senses of the word, in fact. It is from space, and it belongs to the celestials. Again, um, definite article in that second instance. Well, okay, so it's basically immortal, right? I mean, the celestials are- Whoa, 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 dude. The Celestials can totally be killed, or at least temporarily disembodied. It's kind of vague. Wait, what? I thought they were basically space gods. Dude, you're a Thor fan. If there is any lesson to be learned from years of following that character... Uh, It's that gods are mortal. Right, right. Okay, so how do you even start killing a Celestial? Well, let's stick with Thor, and we can say, you know, if you are Thor... You bless your badass axe with your own blood, thereby imbue it with the ability to pierce celestial armor. That is a very mythic solution. Well, it's a very mythic axe. And then, when you're done with that, you team up with the sentry and with Rogue, who by that point will have absorbed the powers of every single Avenger. The Voltron special. Nice. Of course, the victory will lose some of its sweetness when you find out that Kang the Conqueror set the whole thing up just so he could absorb the energy of a dying celestial and merge all of Earth's timelines into one. What?! I'm J. Rachel Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 128 of J. and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Okay, so uh, another normal episode. I'm not used to this whole normal episode thing. Right? Well, we are recording on a Sunday, and we're double recording, so it's not quite normal. Yeah, we are back on our slapdash working around travel recording schedule because October is likewise a slew of conventions and other such mess. So if our next episode, the one about Excalibur, just has us, like, haggard and exhausted, just sort of mumbling our way through the cross-time caper, then, you know, that's why. You just have to pretend we're Alistair Stewart. Both of us. Wow. That, that would be, well, more of a reach for me than for you, I think. I don't know. I mean, neither of us is remotely British for starts. Well, right, but you're similarly dapper. He's not particularly dapper. He's just got short hair, Miles. Is that not what dapper means? It's very confusing for me. I'm just going to stare at you for a minute. Okay, that's legitimate. But anyway, right now we are here not with Excalibur, but with X-Factor. Still staring? Still staring. Um, so, yes, this is the beginning of the Judgment War. Now, in late 1989, a lot of Marvel comics had these big, long storylines, so... On the X side of things, we have the New Mutants going to Asgard like we talked about last time, we have Excalibur doing the cross-time caper like we're going to talk about next time, and we have X-Factor doing the Judgment War, which is this big space opera storyline that goes on for quite a while. I'll break off from staring at your resplendent visage to point out that all three of those stories also happen to be travel-based. They are, yeah. Now, X-Men is sort of the odd man out here because X-Men's just going to have a bunch of seemingly disparate plot lines back in good old Earth and good old 616, which will eventually, eventually lead to the team reforming, but not for quite a while. They have been geographically scattered, and in some cases bereft of their usual memories, consciousness, and identity, so you can look at it as a sort of metaphorical voyage. But certainly nothing so cohesive, and nothing with an overarching, you know, title, like Judgment War, Cross-Time Caper, and so forth. So, leading up to the Judgment War, let's talk a little bit about what X-Factor's been up to. Well... X-Factor is currently residing on ship. Ship is the gigantic, near-city-sized vehicle that had been previously occupied by Apocalypse and which X-Factor had taken over and allied with since ship turned out to be sentient at the end of Fall of the Mutants. It was freed from Apocalypse's control by the team and their wards, and since then it has been both their home and a loyal friend and ally. 
Now, other stuff, also crossover related, because in X-Men, a lot of things are. At the end of Inferno, the team rescued Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, the infant son of Cyclops and his increasingly evil at the time ex-wife Madeline Pryor. Likewise, at the end of that crossover, Madeline died, and her personality and memories, along with those of the Phoenix Force when it had impersonated Jean Grey, became a part of Jean's mind permanently. So Jean's been processing that, and Jean and Scott have been co-parenting Nathan Christopher and bringing him along on all sorts of incredibly dangerous adventures. And being really uncomfortable about the state of their own relationship and really reluctant to define it. Meanwhile, Angel Warren Worthington was turned into Archangel by Apocalypse. He's rejoined the team since, but he's blue, he's got sharp-bladed neurotoxic wings, and... Deeply conflicted feelings about his own morality. The wings, for instance, want to kill, like all wings do. Fun fact, birds' wings want to murder you all the time, but they're just birds' wings, so they can't. You don't use Twitter, so you totally missed my weird middle-of-the-night rant about a drunk Mark Trail who just really resents the hell out of birds. (laughs) That's surprisingly easy to imagine. Isn't it? Like, he just motherfucking hates them. They are ungrateful and they are loud. Can't they just shut the fuck up for once? I, I would say that I'll, I'll never read Mark Trail the same way again, but I don't really read Mark Trail. Give him so. a turtle any day. <laughs> with all of those comic strips, with all of the serious soap opera comic strips, I always pretend that it's basically like the Calvin and Hobbes strips where Calvin and Susie are pretending to be grownups and it's drawn in that style, that all of them are just kids playing make-believe and doing the things they think adults do. Oh man, whatever kids are playing Prince Valiant are really patient, like way more patient than kids are or adults are. What I'm really curious about is the kids playing Mary Worth. Those kids are awesome and I want to hang out with them. They would judge the hell out of me though, wouldn't they? I got to meet the writer of Mary Worth once. I thought you were going to say I got to meet Mary Worth once. I mean, maybe. <laughs> she was really nice. She was a very sweet person. She was totally judging you though. And I know the writer of Judge Parker. I know I'm gradually amassing a knowledge of the people writing soap opera strips. I can use this for evil maybe. If we ever want to start a second podcast... No, no. Although, God, someone should do that. I would listen to that podcast. No, if we ever do a comic strip podcast, it's obviously going to be Doonesbury. Uh, that's true. That's probably the one we've referred to, like, more than the rest of them put together. And it's the one with, you know, X-Men levels of convoluted and vaguely incestuous chronology and relationships and history and a sprawling cast. It's true. But I feel like we're getting sort of off the topic of X-Factor here. So, right, that is where we are right now. That's our status quo. Things are less terrible than they've been for X-Factor. I mean, still a little terrible with Jean having to deal with three minds inside her own and stuff, but less bad. Yeah, and also on the team are Iceman, Bobby Drake, and Beast Tank McCoy. Beast is currently blue and furry. Iceman is currently still wearing the fancy belt from Asgard, I think, that helps him control his powers a bit more. He is indeed the power inhibitor. He wore that for a long time and nobody remembers it. It looks like a wrestling championship belt. I'm pretty sure it is. I'm just going to go ahead and say that it is. I want, maybe it's just like a psychosomatic thing and they just gave him like a toy wrestling championship belt and we're like, no, no, it totally helps regulate your powers. And he was like, oh, cool. Because I mean, that's a thing that's pretty much worked with Iceman before. Like 99% of his limitations with his powers and his issues with his powers turn out to be in his head. And there was that weird thing where everyone thought he lost his powers in House of M, but it turned out it was a self-esteem thing. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And also the time Emma Frost took him over and was like, dude, you're using your powers wrong. Oh, man, that's gotta be really depressing. I mean, I think he talks about that at some point, what it's like to see other people be better at being you than you are. That's incredibly depressing. I hope nobody ever takes me over. They would totally do that. Aw. Yeah. They would would use your ice powers to their full potential. That's exactly what I mean. Yes. 
But anyway, so X-Factor. Now, this is an interesting choice for Louise Simonson for writing an X-Factor story, because in this era, we have X-Factor as the public face of mutant kind, right? Like, they're the ones who are going out there and saying, we're going to represent, like, the positive potential of mutants and talk to humans. And then they spend eight months in space. Right. She pulls them entirely out of that context for what I cannot stop thinking of as a Star Trek episode, because it is. It is the Star Trekiest story that the X-Men have ever been involved in that wasn't actually a Star Trek story. Right, because we have the various characters getting split up to showcase different parts of this alien society. The society which is itself allegorical for their allegorical situation on Earth to some extent. And then over the course of the thing, the involvement of these total outsiders just changes everything. Also, some of them have amnesia. Yes, which is an important Star Trek and fiction in general trope. And there's quasi-romance. Mm-hmm. Oh, and baby theft. It's been a while since we've had any baby theft in X-Factor, so it's good to see that coming back as, you know, a consistent motif. Babies are confusing. I don't even know what you're supposed to do with them aside from steal them. I was going to say steal them, so... Well, there we go. I'm glad we're on the same page. Let's steal some babies. No! Oh, let's... I wouldn't know what the hell to do with them. Well, you have to wait for somebody else to steal them. The baby economy? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this is a story called The Judgment War, I believe we've mentioned. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this because it is spelled J-U-D-G-E-M-E-N-T... On the cover in the little corner sidebar thing on each issue. I love how angry you are about this. I'm just saying judgment is not spelled with an E in the middle. It is J-U-D-G-M-E-N-T. I, I was pissed off the yeah, same way when, when the Magic the Gathering set judgment came out and nobody could agree how to spell it. So I looked this up because this is important to me. Now, judgment with an E in the middle is technically an acceptable spelling and has been around for a while, uh, mostly in England. But even in modern England, judgment with no E in the middle is what's used in official legal proceedings. I'd like to point out, though, that... There is no such thing as correct or incorrect with English. There's just standard or non-standard. English doesn't have an academy, which means there's no fundamental official version of the language. Like in French, for a word to officially be French, it has to be actually approved by a language academy that's under the auspices of the state. That doesn't exist in English, so there's only standard and non-standard. And which is most relevant depends on whether you're approaching it from a descriptive or prescriptive angle. In this case, what you're doing is basically prescriptive, but as you said, judgment with an E is gradually working its way into the standard lexicon. That said, as an editor, as a copy editor especially, I would have struck the E from this because it's not the standard form, and in publications you generally stick to the standard form unless you've got a good reason to deviate. Right. I mean, there was this rumor that the version with the E was the British version, and then when Noah Webster wrote the dictionary, he took it out just like he took the U out of, like, color and stuff like that. Not true, because the version without the E in the middle was around in England for a really long time before that. I'm just saying, you have to have standards. Normally, I'm a live-and-let-live kind of guy, except when it comes to the word judgment, damn it. Frankly, I'm more disturbed by the fact that the title of the first issue of Judgment War is called Kidnaped. I, I, I there, there are so many jokes to make about that that I can't even choose one. Yeah. Kidnaped. Okay. Kidnaped. Well, I hope I never get kidnapped. I hope a kidnapping never occurs with me as the victim. It seems unlikely. Yeah. So there's all kinds of spelling crimes going on here. That being said, this is a really great story and I'm really excited to talk about it. So let's talk about it. You know what my favorite thing about this story is? Paul Smith's art? Yes. I was going to say that it brings Paul Smith back to an X-book, but that's basically the same thing. It's not all Paul Smith. There are a couple issues that Smith pencils and Al Milgram inks, and there are a couple where Smith just does roughs and Milgram actually finishes them. And the difference is kind of striking, but getting Smith back at all is delightful. And getting Smith back, 
on a cool sweeping space story is like the best possible context because I mean this is Brood Saga guy this guy is all about the rad alien landscapes he's also all about the rad fashion because if you remember he did the X-Men Alpha Flight story the gift where everybody turned into like Asgardian gods up in Canada as one does and got cool like new outfits and the fashion on the world that this takes place in similarly out there and similarly awesome yeah I didn't think of it before but this morning when we were talking about it you made the comparison to Mobius which I think is really apt like there's a lot of similarly sort of streamlined odd styles that yeah they evoke a very very similar feel yeah for me the uh, art in this story seems like you know 80 percent the inkle by mobius and uh, jodorowsky and like maybe 20 percent barbarella which i feel pretty okay about yeah that's a good mix so they're on an alien world how do they get there what the hell is going on because last we saw them they were getting kidnapped by lemurians and shit like that but they were and you know in their main series they were fighting trolls so how do you get from trolls to you know Inkle-esque alien cityscapes. Well, in the case of this issue, the ship that you're living on just says, I seem to be flying into space and I don't know why. And that's it. Like, that's the easiest way to set up a story. You just don't set up the story. Yeah, I love how just cause the beginning of this is. Ship just fucks off to space and X-Factor's like, the hell what? And ship's like, eh. And of course, we already saw in the New Mutants issues we covered in the last episode that the New Mutants were just showing up to say, like, hey, grownups, can you help us with our friend who seems to have been possessed by an Asgardian spirit? Nope, rocketing off to space. Because it's a comic book, and thus, that's exactly how the timing works out. I love how that Do works. Do you imagine the equivalent of them just, like, slipping by on something really slippery and just sort of yelling as they're sliding past? It's a really cartoonish scenario. Now I'm just imagining a ship on a slip and slide. Would that be a ship and slide? I think it totally would. Sure. Uh, but regardless, so That's they are thing now. They're flying off into space, and because things always have to be happening if you are X Factor, Jean Grey suddenly just gets a fiery look in her eyes and bursts through the hull to go fly around space. My theory is that X Factor runs on a continuous countdown clock that gets reset every time one or more of them busts through a wall. And it's counting down towards something terrible. Maybe they don't know what. Maybe it's the end of the world. But it's just got to happen once in a while. And, you know, it's coming close to zero and Gene does what's got to be done. Oh, man, is that like in Johnny the Homicidal Maniac where Johnny's got to keep that one wall coated in blood or else something comes through? It's kind of the exact opposite of that, actually. Oh, OK. Logistically, if you think about it. I'm just imagining and uh, it has been, you know, zero days since our last burst through wall incident. <laughs> Osha must really hate X-Factor. I assume that Osha is perpetually brainwashed with regards to the X-Men. That's probably true. And also that they don't hate anyone as much as they hate Tony Stark. For some reason, I'm just imagining Osha being like a sub-department of AIM, and so they just come through your business in their weird beekeeper outfits and then like disapprovingly write things down on notebooks. No, no. Osha super disapproves of AIM, too, I assume. That's probably true. I actually, I would love to do a series about Osha investigators in the Marvel Universe, or at least like a three-page backup story or something. That would be hilarious. I love this plan. They would be the saddest people on the planet. So anyway, Jean's flying into space, and we quickly realize it's because of the part of her that is the Phoenix Force. She's got all these different personalities banging around inside her skull, and this is the one seeing space that's coming out now. Unfortunately for Jean, she is no longer the Phoenix, and she has to do petty human things like, say, breathe. Batman can breathe in space. Is Batman on ship? Is Batman in X-Factor? No. But if he was, he'd be fine. Well, yeah. Clearly. And so Archangel goes to rescue her, 
And X-Factor is just genuinely confused and panicking, as is Ship, because Ship all of a sudden is being yanked into the cosmos and doesn't know why. They do all prove to be really good at holding their breath for extended periods of time, though, which is a skill that will serve them well in a surprisingly large number of subsequent stories. They're also really good at not, like, having their eyeballs explode, because I hear that happens in space. I mean... They'd have some time, and they've got some atmosphere left in the ship, and Gene's telekinetic, which I assume has to help, and Angel's all souped up with techno-organic nonsense. So, yeah, they have more of an advantage. You know, Cyclops has a ceiling visor around his eyes. Iceman is made of ice. The only one I would think in serious danger there would be Beast. I think his fur would just sort of clamp around his eyes to protect them. That is absolutely not how fur works. It's a reflexive action. Mutants, man. They're pretty weird. You're not convinced, I can tell. Well, anyway, they are able to get things, you know, sort of taken care of. They're able to get Gene back into the ship. And the ship's sealed. I think Iceman seals it up with ice. And uh, Jean's freaking out a little here, understandably, because that wasn't her plan, you know? The fact that she has different personalities who are taking her over periodically does not make her happy. And sometimes in combination, they wreak massive destruction because Phoenix wanted to soar through space and Madeline wanted to tear ship open and kill them. And their objectives happen to line up. The way you describe that sounds like some kind of a sitcom premise. Or a buddy cop show. Phoenix is fire and life incarnate, but Madeline just wants to see the world burn. Together, they're Phoenix and the Goblin. <laughs> that just makes me think of Madeline Pryor actually as a goblin, which is a surprisingly entertaining mental image. Aww. Everything's better as goblins. Now, they don't have too long to ponder this various drama, even as Cyclops tries to be reassuring, because... Suddenly, there's a giant planet down below, and Ship can tell from afar that it's technologically advanced, but also ravaged by war and largely deserted, so that's a thing. Luckily, Ship also picks up some broadcasts and is able to manufacture little translator badges for all of X-Factor, which are handy. Smith also consistently remembers to draw the translator badges throughout this story, which is worth noting because that's the kind of thing artists forget a lot but also because no one else ever comments on or notices them, which is a little bit odd. I mean, on a planet where everyone's dressed to, like, Jack Kirby characters, I'd imagine little circles are sort of commonplace. Wait, wait, we've gone from Mobius to Kirby here. Well, there's clearly some Kirby design in the Celestials that are part of this story, and I feel like that bleeds over to the inhabitants of the planet as well. Yeah, let's talk about the Celestials, because one pops up right now and catches ship right in its hand. So the Celestials are basically big space gods who evolve and or judge life on various planets, and they tend to get into wars with Beyonders and Watchers and all that sort of thing. And that's actually about it. They're a bit more complex than that, and you can go into deep, deep, deep dives into Marvel cosmology and a lot of conflicting stories and accounts of their true nature. But basically, they're big, gigantic, armored people who are roughly the age of the universe, who kickstart evolution, then come back, judge the hell out of you, and sometimes destroy all life on your planet. Also, they look really, really awesome. Yeah, man, I think of these guys, maybe the new gods a bit more so, but these are such signature Kirby creations. They really are, yeah, and I love that every time anybody else draws them, like, they're still very Kirby looking. They are. I mean, they are Kirby space tech, mm -hmm. absolutely and unquestionably. And they're so cool looking. I'll see if I can find a picture of a bunch of them. I know there are some in this story. I'll make sure there's one in the visual companion. Mm -hmm. And so the celestial in question just sort of takes ship in the palm of its hand. And X-Factor suddenly isn't there anymore because they're in the middle of a goddamn science fiction war on the planet below. And it is awesome. And from here on out, so many things happen. All at once, and Smith does a great job of conveying the chaos of this scene 
while giving Simonson a vehicle to give us a lot of very fast and very organic exposition about the nature of the world we're on and how the people there engage in warfare. And if there's one thing that's sort of a showcase of the Judgment War storyline, it's that Simonson does a kick-ass job in telling us all about this planet, not through, like, little narrative boxes, but by showing and not telling, by, like, having things come up organically within scenes, by having characters offhandedly mention this thing that is commonplace to them, but weird to us when we hear about it. Yeah, and by creating contexts where it makes sense for people to be throwing out these concepts, like battle points, for instance, which are something that apparently the fighters get for killing one another. Yeah, now the fighters themselves, we should probably talk about the factions involved here because the different factions on this unnamed planet are central to this whole damn storyline. Yeah, the planet never gets a name, which is a shame. And I'd started thinking of it as Metaluna for kind of stupid reasons that don't really come up until what's going to be part two of this. (laughs) So the second episode where we talk about it, but we probably shouldn't call it that because that's from something else. It's just, you know, the planet. Or Metaluna. So the factions we have, there are the rejects. And these are like various monstery type people. So they're lizard. They're the coolest. There are lizard bug men wearing like feathers and wielding axes. There are gargoyles. There are cyclopses. Like not that cyclops, like the the Leela kind or the Greek mythological kind more commonly. Probably closer to the Greek mythological kind. They are characters who are generally humanoid, but whose appearance would mark them as monstrous to the eyes of most Earth-based humans. Meanwhile, on the other side are the chosen. The chosen are basically the idealized human-looking folks who are all very pretty. They're all very white. They are all very sort of 80s idealized in appearance. That's not accidental. That's something that's actually going to become part of the plot. Now, there's a third faction called the Begin Agains, but we're not going to meet them for a while yet. About the Chosen, though, I mean, the fact that there's just like space princesses and big bearded warriors riding robot ostriches and firing energy blasts, like that's where this story immediately announces itself as not science fiction, but straight up space opera. You've got this note just scrawled on the outline. Uh, Start playing some Hawkwind motherfuckers. Have you not heard Hawkwind? I've heard Hawkwind. Okay, good. That's I'm, I'm really entertained at this. It's a very Hawkwind setting. So, yeah, at this point, we focus on each character to do some rapid fire show don't tell about the world and, you know, the way combat works. So the team splits up and we meet other various or characters. Or split up by the battle. First of all, Archangel swoops in to save a fancy space princess whose name we will later learn is Sira from a monster. She is less than grateful. You, you touch me, filth. Despite the taboos and the penalties. But her thoughts are somewhat more conflicted. He's one of the rejects, and yet... He's beautiful, like a well-honed sword. I cannot, must not think such thoughts. Unclean! I am unclean! She's saved from that moral quandary by a bearded warrior who knocks Archangel out and says that he will die in the arena. So I love how overdramatic all of the characters are, and Sierra probably does that better than any other character in this entire story, which is good because she's effectively going to become the main character. But meanwhile, Iceman has been distracted by a rad flying fire lady. Her name is Lev and knocked out by her ally Rask, who immediately get into an argument about who gets the death point if he dies. Now, Marvel Girl is kicking all kinds of reject ass because, you know, they're just in this melee. They don't know which side is which. Well, they're being attacked based on their appearances. They don't know this yet, but, you know, each of them is targeted by a different side or assumed to be part of a specific side based on how they look and how they fight. And Marvel Girl, who basically looks human, is immediately attacked by the Rejects, who assume that she's one of the Chosen. Right. Now, they're losing badly to her until they call in something called a Jammer, who puts the telepathic whammy on her, knocking her unconscious for, like, half the storyline. More than half, I think. She's unconscious for a real long time, it's true. Damn it, Jean! Yeah, seriously. Uh, Cyclops tries to rush to her aid, but he is immediately confronted by a monster with a cool horn. 
Got eye blast, eh? Not bad for chosen. My mama got eye blasts, and papa was invulnerable. Me? I got it all. But you chosen don't got no mamas. No papas neither. You big losers all around. And so two things about this. One, again, there's more of that organic world building as we learn that, oh, the Chosen don't have standard, like, family models. Okay, that's a good thing to know. But also, this guy sounds like he's singing a country song, you know? Mama got an eye blast, papa can't be done, no harm. Except it's a big cyclops singing it. I would buy the hell out of that album. But, like, the one-eyed kind, right? Well, yes, the one-eyed kind. Who's fighting with the two-eyed kind with the visor. Oh, it's very confusing. There are cyclopses of all kinds. Only one of them is a country musician, however. And Beast, meanwhile, is immediately recognized as one of the rejects because he's blue and furry. And the first thing he sees is the Chosen trying to get death points by executing one of the rejects who is a woman with really, really kick-ass fangs and a big eye in the center of her forehead. Um, her name is Zarka. She kind of reminds me of Lilith from Futurama, but more monstery. Speaking of, monster ladies are so important and so few visual fictional things actually let them exist. And especially actually let them exist and look genuinely monstrous, not just like a sexy human lady with some monster attributes. That's something that I feel really strongly about. And it's something that pissed me off so badly. We used to play a ton of World of Warcraft. And you were a female troll. I was a female troll and I was the monstrous I could get the female troll character model to look. This was way, way back in the beginning when there were just like eight races. And I played a troll and I wanted to play a female troll. And yeah, they're tiny. They're, the sexual dimorphism in World of Warcraft is really fucked up. A friend of mine wrote a paper on it once. And yeah, man, like the trolls started out monstrier and they made them prettier. And it ugh, makes me so mad. It's unfortunate. So I'm really happy that we get not only a bunch of monster ladies in this story, but one who's like a central character. So go Zarka. We love you a lot. She's a good monster lady. I, no one's monster ladies will ever measure up to Guy Davis's monster ladies. Maybe Sophie Campbell. Actually, that's how I first found her work was through her really, really kick-ass monster ladies. So anyway, this battle's going on, and at this point, our five characters have all been spread out when the Celestial from before descends, like, you know, just sort of hovers down to the Earth. And everyone scatters. The battle is over. Space Princess and her bearded compatriot take Archangel and flee on their robot ostriches, with the princess, you know, thinking all the while about how forbidden and handsome Archangel is. And Lev, who sees Iceman reverted to his human form now that he's, you know, unconscious— realizes that he must really be one of the chosen, specifically a kind called a dueler. Now, this is dueler with an A, not an E, D-U-A-L-E-R, although they do, in fact, do both. And what that refers to is an entity who basically has two forms, usually, you know, a, a human chosen looking form and an elemental form. Yeah. Uh, so you, you could say that between the uh, dueling and the dueling, this term has a dual meaning. You could. You could indeed. Well done there. Thank you. So they run off. Now Zarka, the Cyclops lady, helps Beast escape, thinking he's a reject too. And in the midst of all this chaos, this random proto-strife-looking armored soldier guy finds Nathan Christopher. Oh the, yeah, the we'd baby. forgotten about, you know, random baby in the middle of the battle. And figures he must have been taken from one of the chosen creches, and the scientists will pay well for his return. Again, more world building, yay. Finally, Cyclops is alone in the group, and he finds himself under a descending celestial foot. Tiny, at the bottom of a page-tall panel, thinking what may be the cyclopsiest line ever. What a stupid way to die. A stupid way to die. The Scott Summers story. You're not wrong. Well, <laughs> we, we'll see, apparently, in the near future. We will. Hopefully not. So, yeah, now we basically have our setup. I mean, we've rocketed into space. We've gotten separated. We've met a ton of different factions on this planet and started to learn a little bit about each of them. And so the rest of the story is just going to be what happens on this unnamed planet. 
So we start discovering that Cyclops does not, in fact, die this particular stupid way. He uses his optic blasts to burrow underground and thus evade the falling foot. Oh, man, I got to say, that's one of the best ways to start a story of Cyclops just barely not getting stepped on. I love the ending on a cliffhanger. Like, that's something that I'm never going to get tired of when it actually works. Again, this is space opera. It's Star Trek. It's a lot of fun. And the to-be-continued moments feel like to-be-continued moments. Like, they feel like they need a dramatic to-be-continued. Like, there's a pulp serial sense to all of it. So Cyclops is basically on his own right now. Let's look at the characters who are traveling around with the natives of this world. Yeah, so last we saw Beast, he was running away with Zarka and a bunch of other rejects. And he's thinking this whole time, like, okay, what do I tell them? My story is going to sound really unbelievable, so I can't just straight up say that I'm from another world. And so he goes with a very simplified version of the truth, which is, I'm from far away. Which, you know, he's not wrong. Now, Zarka's like, okay, wait, what? But you don't know some of the basics here. She figures a jammer, like those weird telepaths that took Gene out, must have somehow hit him and messed with his memories. So she cordially explains some of the things about the way this planet works. And I gotta say, that's a trope that sometimes bugs me, but it's handled pretty gracefully here. So it bugs me more when it's just character randomly has amnesia. Everyone takes it at face value. I actually really like its use here because the conceit that a common casualty of war is people basically having chunks of their mind erased adds a lot of dimension to the world and the story for me. And so as he's talking about the various things that he doesn't know, she's quite taken aback. And I love the way she talks. May you be kissed by Mother Moon. No, that's such a friendly exclamation. I don't know, man. The moon is really big and it's pretty hard and it's definitely made of rocks. Well, as long as it's not the moon from Majora's Mask, that thing was creepy. But it has lips, which, you know, ours doesn't really. That we know of. Well. That we know of. So, yeah, they head to the Reject City, and it's really evocatively drawn. Like, the Chosen City has all the cool architecture, we'll see that later, but the Reject City is this sort of blasted, sparse, poverty-stricken area with these great big stone spires everywhere. And it's much more organic and natural-looking, which is deliberate, because the Rejects, we're eventually going to learn, are people who've deliberately, basically eschewed science and technology. They live very pointedly outside of that, and they very pointedly left it. It was something they had access to once. And they're also severely scarred by war. They've been hit way harder than the Chosen. So, for instance, there's this giant elf-looking reject named Vlan who's, like, sitting on top of a spire, and he's basically mindless after getting hit by a jammer. He just sits up there all day playing with a doll. So, like, whenever we have an establishing shot of the reject village, like, he's in the background somewhere, and it's a nice little visual motif just to remind us, yeah, life really sucks for the rejects. Yeah, we're going to find out, too, that they're coping with an incredibly high infant mortality rate, partially because of their rejection of science. And, you know, you said that they're worse scarred than the Chosen by the war. And I don't entirely know that that's the case. I think the Chosen do a better job of hiding the extent to which they're scarred. I think that the Chosen Society is basically built all about form over function and the pretense of perfection. And you have both societies basically dying out at similar rates just because they're so monolithically opposed to the other's approaches. But, you know, there are heroes and villains uh, among both sides, and it turns out Zarka is actually really awesome. So, you know, she comforts the mate of a dying warrior, talks about an upcoming birth that's happening, is very much directing people around, trying to minimize tragedy, but still comfort the afflicted. And she gives Beast a more detailed sense of the difference between the rejects and the chosen, which leaves Beast wondering how some of the more marginal team members might fare, specifically Archangel. He's as physically handsome as ever, if you discount the blue skin and racing stripes, and the razor-sharp wings. Uh, that's a lot to discount, Beast. So, the Rejects feast that night, 
and Beast mentions that he came with friends. Zarka knows that there is a chosen captive of another reject clan who's likewise a stranger, who's probably Jean, one of the friends that he's describing, but she doesn't bring Jean up because she thinks it would be insulting to mention that he had any kind of relationship or liaison with one of the chosen, which is what they think that Jean is. She also mentions that he might be part of a renegade group called the Begin Agains, which again, we're not going to see until later, but I think this is the first time we hear them mentioned. Now, meanwhile, Beast was thinking about Archangel, so next let's talk about him. So he is trapped with his wings in this weird plastic prism, being sneered at by Rask, one of the uh, chosen that we saw earlier in that big fight. I believe that is the angry bearded man who had struck him down in the battle. He totally is. Rask looks really cool, but is unfortunately absolutely a jerk. And so Archangel's kind of being examined by Rask, by Sira, the space princess who has a crush on him, and by this guy named Lord Palak, the most perfect. And Archangel is in really, really big trouble because he touched Sira. And that's totally not okay to do. I mean, we get the impression that the Chosen aren't supposed to touch each other, period. Like, they have this very non-emotional, certainly non-sexual and non-romantic society. But the idea of a reject touching a Chosen, that's totally not legit. Well, and especially a reject touching the perfect one, which is what Sira is. I mean, she's basically, again, number one from the Star Trek pilot. She is the most perfect of her race at this point among the Chosen, I guess, except for the most perfect one, who weirdly, unlike the rest of the Chosen, is a little green dude. No, that makes perfect sense to me. I mean, you know, you want to look like a supermodel unless you can look like a little green bald dude, in which case, clearly, that's the superior option. So here's a question. What if this dude is actually the impossible man? Oh, man, he's just impy. He's just like popping things in and out of existence. I mean, I I don't think he's nearly, like, puckish enough for that. In fact, puckish is not a word I would use to describe him at all. I would call him not puckish, but racist and murderous. And terrible, right. He really, really is. And he's insisting, in fact, at this point, that if Archangel saved Syria, it was for, quote, his own lewd purposes. There are some uncomfortable parallels to actual racism in the real world in that assumption. Because this is Star Trek. Yeah, it's all allegory. It's true. It's totally Star Trek. So Archangel breaks free and he's like, no, I just like, you know, touched her to save her life because she was about to get zapped by zappiness. And then he demands explanation, saying that he came here with a woman, three men and a baby. And because the Oxford comma is not used in this quote, a woman, comma, three men and a baby, that just makes me think of that movie, except with Archangel as one of the main characters as well, which would have only improved it. Or he means that he came with a woman and a copy of the film. Oh, right. You know, it's Warren Worthington III, Jean Grey, and a VHS copy of the classic film Three Men and a Baby. I have to find my friend and my laser disc. <laughs> X-Factor would totally have laser discs. Chip would have a laser disc player. Oh, unequivocally. And so, uh, yeah, he doesn't have time to protest too much because he gets zapped by Rask. Now, Sira, the space princess, remains head over heels, and this is where she starts becoming basically the main character of this entire story, which I gotta say, I'm completely okay with, because I love most perfect space princess Sira. Now, the Chosen's general condemnation of friendships has resulted in Sira bonding very closely with the robot who raised her. This is ZZ-105. ZZ-105 is basically her parent figure and her confessor and her confidant, and she pours out her heart to this inoffensive little robot. You know, Rask, it turns out, wants to form a union with Sira, but she hates him. She's intrigued by Archangel's tales of being from the sky, which remind her of the forbidden stories that ZZ told her about a time when men and women actually lived together. And it's clear, you know, you mentioned that the Chosen are basically super chaste, that when she talks about, you know, the union that Rask wants, it's not marital or sexual. It's basically a formal alliance. 
And so, you know, she's talking to ZZ105 about all this stuff. And again, we have some grade A info dumping here. This is how you build worlds. You do it organically. You don't just have a bunch of captions or like that big thing at the beginning of Dark City or the Dune movie where some random narrator just tells you what the deal with everything is. The theatrical cut of Dark City. That is not in the director's cut. And that's one of many reasons that the director's cut of Dark City is way better. Absolutely true. And I will fight anyone who says otherwise. Now, Sarah and- With my tuning. <laughs> Now, Sierra and ZZ-105 are wandering the halls of the Chosen City and actually encounter Iceman, who's being examined by a scientist and by Lev, that fire lady who thought he was a dueler. Which, again, provides us with a vehicle for a lesson about the class structure of the Chosen Society as Lev snaps at Sierra. You shouldn't be here, princess, where our imperfection might contaminate you. So here we also learn a bit more about how the duelers work. They're kind of a, a chosen subclass. They're considered imperfect because even though they look like the chosen, they look perfect most of the time. The fact that they're even capable of transforming into this other form is considered an imperfection in and of itself. And that's despite the fact that generally those second forms come with expanded superpowers from what the chosen generally have access to, which as far as I can tell is mostly just jamming. Uh, there's some jamming, sort there's some energy telepathy. blasts. Yeah, there are miscellaneous powers among both the chosen and the rejects. But nothing as powerful as what the duelers can do. And the duelers are basically treated as an underclass for this. Yeah, again, the chosen are all about form over function. They're all about the pretense of this very simple perfection. And in the process, essentially have bred out all of the useful characteristics of their species. Now, Bobby wakes up at this point and he's got amnesia because of course he does. So all he really knows is apparently he's one of these duelers and Lev is kind of his friend. So, OK, let's roll with that. And that's the Bobby we're going to see for most of the storyline is just one who is one of the duelers identifies as such and thus has both their resentment toward the more perfect chosen and judgment toward the rejects. Sira, meanwhile, wanders on to the creche. This is the room where the babies are tank-grown, telling a nearby scientist robot that she has in fact figured out that people can reproduce on their own without science, unlike here. Mixed in a vat, like a cake, and the ones that don't rise properly are just thrown out. Now, the bot is horrified that she has brought this up, this is major heresy, and he is going to need to report her for wrong thinking. But she threatens him, saying that she'll tell the scientist that he's in need of repair, so by way of apology, he gives her a bunch of drugs. I mean, that is really the best way to apologize. It's true. Now, you remember that soldier who stole Nathan Christopher, who engaged in the age-old practice of baby-stealing earlier in the storyline? Well, it's an X-Factor tradition. He shows up at this point, minus his strife-looking helmet, and plus the amazing mustache he apparently had underneath— and tells Sira, what's up? He found this baby. He was going to return it to the scientists, etc., etc. And she says, nice baby. Want some drugs? And so, yes, ZZ-105 gives this dude all the drugs he can carry in two hands, emptying itself out and showing that it was apparently completely full of drugs. ZZ-105 is a complex robot who leads a complex robot life. It's going to get more complex because now that he's empty of drugs and mustache soldier guy has run off to, you know, presumably snort slash smoke slash whatever those drugs, there's enough room inside ZZ-105 to hide this baby. And so Sira does. She hides Nathan Christopher inside ZZ-105 because she doesn't really understand how babies or maternal instincts or human connection work, but she knows that she wants to take care of this kid. So that's two baby thefts within as many issues. Oh, we'll have more. Don't you worry. I still don't think we've quite caught up with Inferno. No, no, there were, there were a lot of baby thefts there. So what about Cyclops? So Cyclops is wandering around until he runs into a green wizardly dude named Ryast. 
Now, none of Cyclops' allies are in sight at this point. There are two cities. They are in opposite directions. He doesn't know which way the rest of the crew has gone. And Ryast basically says, okay, well, look, you can come with me, but you have to be careful. And these are what Ryast is one of the begin agains. They yeah. are living in an underground base and they're basically what their name implies. Yeah, they're these historians and mystics who want to find a different path. They're composed of both people from the Chosen and the Rejects. They are specifically folks who have noticed that there's the whole space god thing going on and that maybe they should fucking pay attention to that. Not just scatter when they show up because the Celestials apparently have shown up to judge their planet four times and haven't acted And they're pretty sure that a fifth judgment is coming and that they're going to be pretty fucked. Right. They call it the fifth host, which I got to say sounds pretty badass. It really does. So, yes, at this point, Archangel is put into the arena as promised by jerkwad Lord Rask and put against a reject warrior. Now, Archangel doesn't want to fight. And this reminds me a little bit of the scene from the X-Men Apocalypse movie where Nightcrawler's in a cage match with Angel and Nightcrawler doesn't want to fight. But it's kind of, you know, reversed. Yeah, you know what it doesn't remind me of that made me kind of sad that I really wanted it to remind me of? What's that? The cool dueling platform from the Flash Gordon movie. Oh, with those spikes that come out yeah. and like it sort of tilts all around? Yeah, this isn't like that, which is a shame because it is a slightly Flash Gordon-y looking place in Civilization. It's just close enough to make me kind of want and expect and be disappointed by the lack of that. But no, it's a regular old school Roman style arena and they are forced to fight by these things called goads, which are little spiky balls uh, whose points have drugs on them. Those kind of remind me of the sand spurs on like South Florida beaches. They get stuck in your foot and you have to pull them out really hard and they hurt a lot. And then you get into like big fights with people with metal wings. Exactly. Every freaking time. Florida's terrible. Oh, I, you know, I, I don't go back there except when I have to. Second only to Australia. But yeah, so in fact, there is a big fight and Archangel wins. and The audience is screaming, kill, 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 because that's what audiences do. Archangel tries to attack Rask and Palak, effectively shooting one of the flechettes from his metal wings into the apple in the mouth of a pig that's on the table in their observation booth above the arena. That's the Hunger Games. (laughs) Um, No, he tries to attack them. And unfortunately, his blow is effectively deflected and he's zapped by the force field, um, tearing his sleeve and showing light blue underneath because apparently the pattern stuff going on on him was a bodysuit, except maybe it wasn't. And this is just really, really, really inconsistent. Yeah, I hadn't remembered it getting inconsistent until far later, like well into the 90s. But nope, apparently even in 89, it totally still was. I've got a theory for this. What's that? The designs on him are temporary tattoos. Oh, and they just sort of take a while to rub off? Yeah. Oh, uh, okay. I mean, I'll, I'll buy that, I suppose. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Yeah. Do you imagine Apocalypse with like a washcloth and the you know, peeling off the paper? <laughs> That's surprisingly easy to picture. And then he goes back and fixes up the turtlenecks again. Now, Sierra wanders around in the chosen uh, area after this, after watching this fight. She briefly runs into some of the duelers, including Iceman, taking smaller bets on the arena fight than the higher chosen were doing. And she recognizes him as one of the friends whom Archangel had talked about. Now, in the meantime, she's been sneaking food to Nathan Christopher, using her jamming abilities to sort of put the psychic whammy on anybody who gets in her way so they don't remember her. But she's not very good at it, so basically she just completely memory wipes them and leaves them drooling in the hallways. Well, only when she gets uh, caught by one and panics, but it's kind of unfortunate. She's not very good at using her powers. Right, she's not allowed to practice them. The Chosen aren't allowed to use their powers, period, day by day, just in battle. You get the impression that some might get the chance to practice, but she, as the perfect Sira, really doesn't. So Chosen Society continues doing its thing. Iceman, being a snarky motherfucker, pisses off Lord Rask and finds himself getting sort of uh, pressured into fighting Archangel in the arena, so that'll be a thing. Star Trek! 
In the meantime, though, uh, Cyclops has been hanging out with the Beginnigans and is talking to a lot of them about kind of what the deal is, what the deal is with space gods and society in this planet and that sort of thing. And what Cyclops wonders hearing all of this and about the fifth host is whether if everyone on the planet, the begin against the rejects, the chosen, all put aside their differences and teamed up, whether they could collectively defeat the Celestials. I love that Cyclops' first thought is, fuck it, let's fight God. I mean, this is Scott Summers. He's been through some shit. Man, this is why he's my favorite. <laughs> because he fights God? Yes. Well, so many reasons. But <laughs> but yeah, he is he is all about basically shrugging and blazing on in the face of impossible odds. That's sort of his jam. Now, speaking of other characters who generally do that, we still have Jean, and she's still unconscious. Now, Zarka knows at this point that, yes, clearly this red-haired woman, this chosen woman, is the person who Beast has been talking about as one of his comrades, but she figures, I'm not going to tell him what's up until he tells me what's really up. I don't trust this guy, and I gotta say, I can't fully blame her, because she's totally right. Beast is hiding stuff. Yeah, but he's not hiding it maliciously, which is an important distinction. Now they're briefly diverted by one of the rejects, the wife of a fallen soldier, giving birth, and Beast assumes that this will be a joyous occasion, but it is not. It is cause for a good deal of tension, since the infant mortality rate among the rejects is incredibly high. Maybe one in ten survives, including this baby, which dies within moments of birth. And we get, again, just sort of an intense window into the planet and the power dynamics at the baby's funeral as a sort of a priest figure prays that the baby will next be reborn as one of the chosen, which is... That's really depressing. Yeah, it really is. But Beast tries to convince them, like, hey, I've got some science-y stuff, maybe we can fix this. They don't want to have any of it. They say he's talking like a chosen. He even tries using, like, what he's sort of their religious beliefs to appeal to them, but no dice. Yeah, Zarka tells him that the rejects are too weak and flawed to determine who lives and who dies, and to mess with that system would be wrong. That's um, some unfortunate internalized self-loathing. Yeah, it's sad and extremely fucked up. Now, not everything is sad in reject culture, because there's another festival pretty soon after, the coming of age of a young pyrokinetics named Nico. During this festival, Beast overhears a story of a reject in the arena who attacked the Chosen, one with wings and bladed feathers, and is like, okay, that's probably my bud. Hey, Rejects, how do you feel about mounting an expedition to the Chosen City, saving my friend, and bringing Chosen culture down around their ears? Yay! Star Trek! Huzzah! Fuck the Prime Directive! <laughs> Beast does his best to prepare what Rejects he can muster for this mission, and he learns in the process of this that there are frequent prisoner exchanges against the Rejects and the Chosen, but there's no way that the Chosen are going to let Archangel go because he's the best arena fighter, so the only way to get to him is going to be to stage a rescue. At this prisoner exchange, we also find out that the rejects who have Jean, they're planning to exchange her because clearly she's one of the uh, close to perfect people because, you know, I mean, look at her. She's hot, right? And because everyone here is plotting, Zarka decides that she's going to take Beast to the prisoner exchange, see how he reacts to Jean. And if he recognizes her as a friend, she'll assume that he's a chosen spy or a begin again and she'll take him out. Now, speaking of Gene, in the meantime, the begin again leader is showing Cyclops a mystical vision of his partner. Cyclops says that he is going to go and find her. Obviously, she's in bad shape. She's still unconscious. And this is what he does. And the begin-agains are aghast. Yeah, I mean, their flaw, their main flaw, is that they see so much of the larger situation that they're paralyzed with indecision. They're worried that anything they might do might piss off the space gods even more and get their world blown up. Cyclops, however, isn't having any of their caution. You know that the space gods are here to judge you, but you don't know what criteria they'll use. And so you're afraid to move for fear of offending them. 
Well, the space gods have offended me. <laughs> That's such a weird, like, firm statement, talking about how he's been offended by space gods. Offended by space gods, the Scott Summers story. Hell yeah, fuck you, space gods. <laughs> That's right. That'll show you. So the day of the exchange arrives as everyone's Google Calendar alarms go off at once. And uh, this is where shit gets real, basically. Beast sees Jean and jumps down about 500 feet to meet her, and Zarka immediately orders him arrested. Man, just because he's got a chosen buddy doesn't mean he's evil. Damn it, Zarka, stop being racist. Damn it, everyone on this planet, stop being racist. Well, in Zarka's case, I don't know if the term would actually apply because it's a state that exists relative to social power and privilege. You I could, You could describe her as being biased but not racist in the same sense as, say, one of the chosen might be. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yeah, I like that everyone's wrong, too, like, including the begin-agains. I was expecting them to be sort of the noble, always-right pacifists, but no, they're just super passive, and they are also wrong. And they have doofy hats, although not yet. Now, you would think then at this point the exchange would go off without a hitch, but it doesn't, because Sierra and Nathan Christopher are discovered by Lord Rask and the other jerks in The Chosen, since Nathan Christopher is crying, leading Nathan Christopher to cry even more and psychically wake up Jean Grey, which, as we know, is probably not good for anybody around at this point. Jean? There is no more Jean. To which Beast replies, What? Then who? Phoenix? Sometimes. Not always. We share this body now. Guess again, Fuzzy. Third time's the charm. Madeline. So, there are three people sharing Jean's body right now. Sometimes you can tell their difference from behavior, but they also look different. There are visual distinctions, and what it comes down to, what I love about this, what Smith and Milgram do here, is that those distinctions largely come down to art style. And Jean's hair and posture being drawn in ways that are signature to three different specific artists. Right. So when Phoenix is in charge, Jean looks like she's drawn by John Byrne. Or at least she's sort of Byrne-styled. Um, Madeline is Paul Smith-styled. He was the first artist to draw her. He was the one who kind of created her signature appearance. And regular old Jean Grey is drawn more like Walter Simonson, who's been drawing X-Factor for most of the run so far. So everyone at this point is dashing toward the chosen city trying to converge. Scott is running late, but he's on his way, even though he's being pursued by the Beginnigans, whose leaders are dead convinced that they have to not act, but whose members are kind of thinking that Cyclops might be onto something and maybe they should all go hunt down a space god. And so he's on his way, yelling out, Gene, don't worry, Gene, I'm coming for you. To which Madeline, as Gene replies, Scott, darling. Are you indeed? So I have mixed feelings because I like seeing more Madeline Pryor, certainly. She's a great character, but ever since Inferno, every time she's come up in Jean's mind, she's just like pure, unambiguous evil. So, theory on that. What Jean's got is essentially a facsimile or an absorbed version of Madeline kind of frozen in a specific moment, in the state in which she absorbed her. When she was, indeed, super evil and basically defined by resentment. Well, and defined by the idea that she and Jean could not possibly coexist. Mm -hmm. So she's stuck in that form, and it hasn't been that long. Madeline has not had a lot of time and space to come to terms with what's happened. She hasn't had access to the support system and resources that Jean obviously has, and Phoenix does to some extent. I mean, to me, the fact that she's still in that frame of mind makes a lot of sense. It does, yeah. But so, yes, we have everything coming to a head. We have Jean Grey with, uh, you know, playing Find the Lady with the various consciousnesses inside her mind. We have The Lady or the Other Lady or the Cosmic Force. Exactly. We have Scott Summers uh, leading a small begin-again army to rescue her. We have Archangel and Iceman scheduled to fight in the arena. We have Beast imprisoned by the Rejects. 
But what about Sira? Because, as I said, Sira is kind of the main character of this story. Sira is now in the grasp of bearded bad guy Rask. He is now rich enough, thanks to his arena winnings, to command the scientists with bribes, and he offers her a deal. He'll save her from death or worse, which is what she'd get for baby napping, if she allies That's with him. baby naping, I should remind you. Oh, I'm you. sorry, baby naping, you're yes. right. Kidnapping the baby. And she agrees, not knowing what else to do. She hopes that she can maybe confide in her old friend ZZ105, but no, ZZ105 has been repaired. Which is to say, reprogrammed, its individuality, its personality, like, the only friend that Sierra ever had is gone. And man, robots getting overwritten and having their personalities erased, like, always gets me. I don't know why. Oh god, me too, so much. But Sierra, meanwhile has had enough of this nonsense, and she decides that she is going to take her protagonist status and run with it. Enough sniveling. Zizi can no longer help me, but I have power of my own. Not keyed to my lost status, but implicit in my being. I can help myself. My mind took the first step when the angel held me in his arms. My heart followed when I held the babe. And now, with all my soul, I'll free first myself, and then the archangel. I'll tell him where to find the child. Then let the Chosen face his wrath. And may he destroy us utterly. Go, Sira. She's really great. I don't know. I, I like her a lot, and it makes me sad. Okay, so I like the Judgment War a lot in general. Like, way more than I remembered from when I was a kid. Because, as it turns out, my father's collection stopped, like, halfway through it. So I never got to see what happened. Aw. But I wish we'd gotten to see more of this place. I mean, you know, the X-Men have certainly gone to many locations that seemed very different than their usual premise that have been a big deal. So Shi'ar Space, the Savage Land way back in the day, that sort of thing. Maybe the clone X-Men stopped by there at some point. Oh, the ones who were really brood Ilyana freed that one time? The, well, the ones who were brood infected, who were clones created by the brood, who had all of the memories of the real X-Men, who are just out there fucking around in space somewhere and no one has remembered since their one appearance ever. All right, in my heart canon, that's exactly what happened. But yeah, Asira especially, I love her as a character. Like, she could have been the protagonist of her own book easily, I think. Probably her own trilogy, just based on the style of story that this is. Probably true, yeah. So anyway, we'll be returning in a not-too-far-away episode for the second half of The Judgment War. But in the meantime, let's do some questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, will there ever be another Explain the X-Men episode entirely of listener questions? Probably so. The catch with those episodes is that they are a lot more prep-intensive. Um, like way more than we expected when we did that one a while back. Yeah, and way, way more than continuity episodes. So we have to plan really far out to make them work and because for the last long while there's been a lot of traveling and a lot of chaos going on we've been kind of scheduling by the skin of our teeth i would love to do another one again i'd love to do another one again this year if we can hack it but it might be a while i will say though send in your questions if we get enough that are cool and enough that we have answers for we will glom those all together i don't think we've done one of these since number 11 so it's probably about time that's been a little while yeah yeah and we'll see this is, this is also one of the few times that we actually answered like personal questions and production questions as well as continuity questions hopefully so, before too long yeah so yeah send those on in and we will try to get one on the docket sometime you know before the end of 2016 uh yet another anonymous listener on tumblr asks or possibly the same one i don't know because they're both anonymous do the x-men even have a school anymore i haven't followed the comics in a while but there doesn't seem to be a school anymore so, yes, they do. The Jean Grey School from Wolverine and the X-Men still exists. It's currently in Limbo. That's the demonic realm, not the existential state. And that's the home base of the Extraordinary X-Men in Jeff Lemire's book that he's writing right now. And so we've had some focus on some of the older students from the school. So most recently in Apocalypse Wars, we looked at Glob Herman, Anil, No Girl, and Ernst. And that's been cool, but I gotta say, I still really think we need another X-Men book. 
like a school-based book, sort of like New X-Men Academy X was or Wolverine and the X-Men. Yeah, the only one of the X-Books that's really about a younger generation of X-Men and focused on them exclusively right now is all new X-Men. And that's the road trip book. That's not a school book. Yeah. So maybe after, you know, the next X-Men uh, line-wide reboot, we'll get one of those. I really hope so. Now, meanwhile, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters. I believe today I am turning it over to the one and only Apocalypse. So, Ship begins to uncover my deception as it discovers the Celestials. Little does Ship know of my hidden agents, John Derrick and Murray McCulloch, who even now guide its fate further. All goes according to plan. All parts of the plan. Apocalypse definitely plans this, and would never just make things up as he went along and then claim credit for whatever happened. So swears Apocalypse! Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, and at ExplainTheXMen.com. Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is totally listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and stay ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. Next week, we'll be back on Earth, or at least on an Earth, as Excalibur finds itself in the magical and mythic Middle Ages. Oh. Of 1989.